Amen. Thank you. Good morning, Mission Church. Good morning, guests and everyone in between, whatever you consider yourself. We are extremely glad that you are here this morning. As Pastor Eric just said, my name is Pastor Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission Church. Uh, and we are extremely glad as we continue our pursuit to worship Jesus, to make disciples, and to multiply that you have joined us. And we pray that that is why you're here as well. We strive to do that every single week that we gather, but we also strive to do that in between the times that we gather as a faith family. So thank you once again for being here. As Pastor Eric mentioned, today we will be continuing through the book of Acts. We will be looking specifically at chapters 23 and 24 if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles or devices there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere close by on the floor under a chair somewhere. Feel free to use that. If you don't own a Bible, please take that home with you and read Genesis 1 and then keep going. So we, um, <laughs> we will be winding down um, our, this sermon series as we make this move to Briarwood. So this week, again, we'll be looking at chapters 23 and 24. There's 28 chapters. You do the math. So in the next couple of weeks, we will be finishing this up. But before we start, because you can never do this too much, I'm going to pray for you guys if you would pray for me as, as we move forward and we will get started. Father, I just thank you for this moment or these moments that we are being able to come into your presence, that you are here with us. And I pray just now that you would move me aside. I am, I am simply a man, but you are God, and you can speak into the hearts and minds of everyone gathered, including myself. And I pray that you do so through your word, that you would move me out of your way so that you could do your work in, in this church and in these people, that you would challenge the believer, that you would convict the unbeliever, and as Pastor Eric just prayed, if there is an unbeliever in this room that does not have a relationship with you right now, may that change over the next few minutes. May they come in without a relationship and leave with a relationship with you. And may their lives never be the same. We thank you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is truth. That it is the basis of all truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, just a short, and I do mean that this time, short recap of where we have been over the last few weeks so that we can gather why and how we got to this moment in chapter 23. So a few weeks ago, Pastor Eric preached about Paul being in Corinth um, and the culture there and how, how corrupt it was and all of those things. Then we looked the next week as he traveled to Ephesus and the things that he had to battle there with the worship of Artemis and all of those things. And then... Last week, we even looked at his journey to Jerusalem. He made a lot of stops that they didn't really go into, but they, they mentioned he stopped there. I would bet that he preached the gospel there, or he probably wouldn't have stopped. And then we saw him arrive at Jerusalem. Now, we saw through that process that Paul faced a lot of opposition. Uh, he even faced warning from the Holy Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. There were lots of people telling him, look, Paul, this isn't going to end well. Go somewhere else. You can keep preaching the gospel. Just don't do it in Jerusalem. And Paul said that I see no value of my life unless I finish my race well, unless I finish my ministry. So I'm going to Jerusalem. And there we saw him set an incredible example of being faithful to God when it is far from easy. We must follow that example. We saw this last week. We must be steadfast in our obedience and allow God to bring the growth. So in short, we must continually share the gospel, even as that gets harder and harder to do in our culture. It may become illegal. It may be what's well, already frowned upon. But we must continue our course. We must finish our race. We must finish our ministry well. And then turn the rest over to God and let him do what he's going to do or not do and be okay with the results. 
So last week, we saw Paul do this in Jerusalem, and he got arrested, just like they told him he would, just like the Holy Spirit told him he would. He knew this was coming. He didn't care. He went forward. So he was arrested. Now, we kind of left off a little part of chapter 22, and is, I'm date, dating myself, even though I wasn't even alive when these originally aired, but reading through Acts is like reading through the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons. you remember how those ended every week? Does anybody even remember that cartoon? Okay, two people. All right. Anyway, so those, every week, though, they were like tied to the train tracks or they were falling off a cliff and the show would just end, right? And it would say, tune in next week to see if Rocky and Bullwinkle live or whatever they, I don't know how they ended it, but they would always want cliffhanger to leave you to come back next week. I feel like that's exactly what we see here in Acts. Every week we look at Paul's life, he's in another calamity or another trouble. He's in prison or he's beaten or he's left for dead or he's snake bit or he's shipwrecked or all of these things. And every week it's like, man, how is he going to keep going? And yet he continually, continually moves forward. So we see Paul has been arrested. He's falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the synagogue. He didn't do it, but that really doesn't matter to these Jewish people. They just want to get Paul out of the picture. So they make some stuff up. And then, even though we didn't look at it, last week at the very end of chapter 22 is where Paul gives his defense He's allowed to speak in front of these officials, and he basically just gives his story again from start to finish. He gives his story from his B.C. days, as we like to call them around here, his before Christ days, before he was following Jesus, how he looked, and then after he was following Jesus. And just for the sake of time, we're not going to preach through that whole thing because a few weeks, well, a few months ago now probably, we preached through Acts 9, but just to re- so we will remember exactly who we're talking about, this is Saul, okay, and Again, we're not preaching through the whole text, but I want to remind you of who, we're, who we are talking about so that you can never say, well, God could never use me. God, I'm a too much of a sinner, or I am too this, or not enough this, because God is using Saul. This whole story here is about Jesus, but is about Paul, who was, and I'm going to say a word here, and I'm going to pause for about five seconds and let it really sink in. I'm going to say a word, and I want you to really let yourself process this word, and then we'll, we'll tr- at least have a vague picture of who we're talking about here. ISIS. Think about what you just thought. I, I don't know what they were. We don't have to verbalize them here. But I doubt any of them were pleasant. I doubt any of those thoughts were kind. And that's who we're talking about. Saul was a terrorist. Whatever just conjured up in your mind when I said the word ISIS, that is who Saul was. He didn't believe in Jesus, so he wanted to kill people or at least bring them to prison or whatever, allow them to be killed on his watch, however you want to phrase that. That's who he was. I'm sure Brian Williams would be there to report on it if, if, if we had had helicopters back then. Only a few of you actually get that joke. But if YouTube existed, if Facebook existed, he would have been all over it. People would have been watching his videos in disgust. How could he possibly do this? How could he be the ringleader of this? That is who we were talking about. It was his job, and he was going to do his job very well in Damascus. And then on the way, we see Jesus confront him and conquer him in his sin, defeat him completely against his will. This is not Paul seeking after Jesus. This wasn't Paul going, well, maybe I've made a mistake. He had asked permission to go do this more, and the officials were like, yeah, go ahead. Go get more Christians. And on his way is when Jesus confronted him. And now we see he's the greatest evangelist on the planet at this point because Jesus has left. He's the greatest church planner on the planet 
because Jesus has left. Outside of Jesus, I would contend he's the greatest church planner evangelist that we have seen other than Jesus. That's who he is using. That is who God is using. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see the irony that Paul now sits in the very same seat he was dragging people to sit in years before. He used to drag Christians out of their homes. You get this picture that he just busted down the door and dragged them out of their homes and marched them to the officials, if they lived that long, to the officials to be threatened, to be imprisoned, to, be, to whatever happens, but they were charged with being Jesus followers or Christians. And now, that's exactly what's happened to him. Paul has gone from the persecutor to the persecuted, and now he sits in the very same seat. And I, I don't even know if it hit him at that very moment, but he didn't seem to care. He had been transformed by the living Savior, and he was never going to change. And that's where we're at. So he's given his defense. He's told that whole story. And then we pick up in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 23, if you want to read along. It says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up until this day. We will come back to that in a little bit. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of the people. All right, we see in verse 1 here that Paul has at least been sincere his whole life. He's been genuine. He has been doing what he feels God has called him to do. Even before he was following Jesus, he felt he was doing what God had called him to do. And even now, afterward, he, is, he feels that same way. He says this in, in verse 1, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up until this day. And like I said, we will take a hard look at this in just a little bit. But let's keep reading. One interesting fact here, and this is probably interesting to me, Pastor Eric, and two other people in the room, but you know how we're nerds about this kind of stuff. It most scholars, or at least a lot of them, believe that Paul was basically blind at this point. Uh, based upon verse 1, it says, and looked intently at the council. It was like he was squinting and trying to make out who he was talking to. And then that's also the, or the explanation of why he spoke badly to the priest and then immediately was like, oh, oh, my bad, I didn't know who I was talking to. It's like he couldn't see who he was talking to and he just thought some random dude had told this guy to punch him in the mouth. And then, anyway, so he, again, three people found that interesting but so he speaks harshly to the high priest the high priest or he apologizes to the high priest and then we move on so keep reading in verse 6 through 10 it says now when Paul perceived again perceived not saw that's another clue that, anyway that one part I'm trying to make you guys interested in that fact and it's not working so now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees he cried out in the council brothers I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We could find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel did speak to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. 
So we see here that Paul is sensing that everyone is against him at this point. The entire crowd wants him killed or put in prison or whatever they are screaming, but everyone is against him. And very shrewdly, he, he knows, hey, some of these guys are Sadducees, some of these guys are Pharisees, so I'll just say this buzzword, and then guess what's going to happen? So he says the word resurrection. That's why I'm here. I'm, I'm here because I'm preaching the resurrection. And sure enough, it worked. The Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection start fighting with the Pharisees, and he's kind of a forgotten piece of this, and they're no longer uh, in cahoots together against Paul, but they are now fighting each other. Now, Paul is then taken to prison again. He's, this doesn't get him out of trouble. It just gets him out of momentary trouble. So they put him back into prison, and then we continue reading. So he's back in prison. I'm sure he's discouraged at this point. And then verse 11. And if, if you have a Bible that has Jesus' words in red letters, these should be in red letters. Mine doesn't, but other ones that I read did, and it's very clear who is speaking to Paul here. But verse 11, it says that the Lord... The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for have you, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Take courage, for you have testified about me, and you are going to have to do it again. So again, just like last week, we see God telling Paul two things. One is you will be going to Rome. I'm going to make sure that happens one way or another. You are going to testify about me in Rome. Nothing's going to stop that purpose. You are going there. Two, Jesus tells Paul to take courage, to stand fast, to be strong, to not fear, to not back down, to not waver. That's what this word, this, these words mean. Most translations say take courage, but it could be interpreted as all of those things. To stand fast. Do not back down. Don't waver. Don't compromise this message. Don't change it at all. You're going to testify here and you're going to testify in Rome. Don't change it. It's no different. Tell the same message. So Paul is reassured here that he is in the, his stance is right and that God is going to protect him. We see Jesus himself telling him that he is right. And what I want to tell you is we have that right here. Jesus himself is telling us what to believe. This is where our truth must be based. If we are going to have a message that we cannot change and we cannot compromise, it must come from here, not our opinions. We may read something in here that we don't like. I do all the time. I'm like, mm, man, if that could only be different. And yet I have to go that this is the truth. This is what we must stand firm on. This is what Jesus is telling Paul to say. I know he didn't have it in written form. I understand that. But he is saying the gospel message that you are preaching and that has gotten you in this predicament is what you must continue to stand firm in and preach again in Rome. Now this is where we're going to take a slight aside from the exact story of Paul. But we saw earlier that he said he had a good conscience his whole life. So at one point, Paul believed firmly that Jesus was not the Messiah. So much so, he was willing to kill people for it or have them killed, all of those things. Now we see him convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist there to realize that those are two opposite things, right? One point, he realized, or he didn't believe that he was. Now he believes he, he is so much so that now he is not willing to kill for it. He's willing to die himself for it. That changes the game. My first question is, which one of those seems more convincing? Even nowadays, people will kill you over just about anything. We read it in the news. It seems all too common that people will just get mad and kill you. So for someone to have the conviction enough to kill people, 
I mean, I guess it's somewhat convincing, but it doesn't convince me as much as someone who is willing to die for something. We don't see that very often. We see people avoiding death at all costs. We see very few instances where someone believes in something enough to truly die for it. We see this with soldiers. We see this with police officers and firefighters as they rush into danger to, to save someone else. We see this with parents and their kids. You want to get somebody riled up, mess with their kids. It doesn't matter how old they are, whether they're grown or whether they're a baby. You mess with their kids, they're probably going to be willing to die for it if it comes to that. But other than those few instances, most people are trying to avoid death at all costs. They're running scared. If, I mean, if a dude shows up in the, the minute mart and is threatening to kill everybody, Kyle Charlotte might be there and do something. I'm probably just going to hide behind the chips. So I don't know too many people that are just rushing into danger like Paul is. Paul was warned over and over, this is going to end bad. I don't care. I'm going. So we see that first of all. Secondly, this statement, like I just said, we have to base our truth on something. And it, it seems at one point that even though he was convinced God was telling him that Paul was basically just judging right and wrong from his conscience. His conscience was clear. Even at the time, he was clearly against God and against his plan and against his will. And this is where we are in society right now. Our consciences, our feelings have become facts. They're so absolutized that we are making laws about them now. People feel a certain way. Let's make a law about it. Let's change the law. The highest truth nowadays are people's consciences, and they're, they're their own judge and jury. They don't have to face the consequences because all they have to say nowadays is, I was born this way. I've always felt this way. I've always been this way. And how dare you discriminate against who I was made to be or who I've always been or who I feel like I am or whatever they want to say. But truth seems to be based on a very arbitrary, fluid, ever-changing thing. It's whatever the culture kind of says is true now. And it doesn't even have to be the majority, as we talked about a few weeks ago. Laws are made for the minority now because they're the squeakiest wheel, so they get the oil. But we must base our truth on something that is static and unchanging, and that is the Word of God. This is where Jesus is speaking to us today to take courage, don't waver, stand strong. This is what we must defend. We must be willing to remain steadfast, just like Paul, in the face of the majority, and call sin what it is, and that is sin. But we cannot stop there. If you read through Acts, if you read through all of the apostles' teaching, when they would go to a new place, they would call people sinners, but they would not stop there. Hey, you're sinners. You're going to hell. See ya. They would say, hey, you're sinners. Turn. Repent. The gospel can change your life. Jesus can change your life. The resurrection can change your life. We cannot let our message be only that people are wrong, and that's it. We must stand firm in the one who forgives, the one who transforms. We must stand firm in the gospel that can change and transform lives. Paul was unwilling to change his message. We see it over and over again. He's threatened, he's beaten, all of these things, and he refuses to change that this is what changes. It's not these rituals. It's not being a Jew. It's not this. It's belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is what changes. So our message today in today's culture must be twofold. Sin is sin. We cannot back down on that. That is compromising the gospel to say, eh, if you feel that way, it's okay. If the Bible says it is sin, whether we like it or not, it's sin. 
And we must be willing to say that. But we also must follow that by saying, and here is the cure. Here is the transformation. Here's how you can change. Here's how you can be freed from that slavery. We have a message that is treason to today's culture. The gospel is treason in our culture today because how dare you say anything that disagrees with anybody else? You just got to compromise and make it all fit. Now, in your weekly today, there's a bunch of scriptures listed on that empty page. Uh, they're all just listed there. This is one, so you can look them up and read them later. Two, so you can understand that I am not making these things up. I also want you to realize that these things that I'm getting ready to mention are not an exhaustive list. This is not a fire and brimstone church. If you've been here very long, you know that. But just checking the news this week, these are the things that stood out to me. And I'm not saying that we get on Facebook about this, but this is how we have to be true to what the Bible says. When we meet these people, when we are faced with a question, we can't back down and say, well, uh, I kind of believe this, but you know what? You're okay to believe whatever you want to believe. You know, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. We have to be willing to give this twofold message. So, the, like I said, they're listed in your uh, weekly if you want to look them up later. But we must be willing to tell the abortionists and the pro-choice people that abortion is sin. But the gospel brings new birth. John 1, 12, and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of man, nor the, nor the flesh, but of God. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To the murderer. Yes, murder is a sin. But the gospel brings life. Romans 6, 4, We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism unto death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. To the homosexual, yes, homosexuality is a sin, but the gospel brings better fulfillment. John 10, 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To the racist, racism is a sin. The gospel brings family. It brings acceptance. Galatians 3, 27 and 28. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Romans 10, 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. To the transgender, it's a sin. But the gospel gives new identity. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Even if then you have been raised with Christ, seeking the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. To the child molester, the God, that it is a sin but the gospel brings new desires. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. To the terrorists, it is a sin, but the gospel gives new purpose. 2 Timothy 1, 9. Who, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. To the drug addict and the alcoholic, being addicted to substances is 
a sin, but the gospel delivers us from slavery. John 8, 34 and 36. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It is the gospel that brings the cure for these things. It is not our slander of the behavior. It is not just calling out sin that is going to change anything. It is the gospel that can transform all of these people. It's not our Facebook rants or our Twitter rants. It's not our protests. It's not our signed petitions. The gospel is the treason. Complaining and pointing out things is not treason to today's culture. Everyone's doing that. Get on Facebook today and just count how many times somebody, without using names, will call somebody out for their behavior or call a group of people out for their behavior. And they have no affiliation with Jesus whatsoever. They just want to complain or they just want to point out the negative and everything. That's not treason. You won't be brought up to the officials for that like Paul was. The gospel is the treason. And why does the gospel offer these things? Because Jesus does. This is exactly how he lived. He poured out his grace during his life to those who deserved it the least. And now we are called to pour that grace out onto others, even and especially when we disagree with their stance. We can disagree in love. We must stand firm and take courage in the gospel that transforms lives. This is what we are to believe will change our city, our nation, and our world. Not us and not just what we are against. The gospel message. We must call sin exactly what it is. But once we do that, we must fervently pray that next week at Mission Church, a hundred of these people are in the, on the seats right now so they can hear the gospel message. I pray homosexuals come here. I pray transgenders come here. I pray that the murderers and child molesters go to jail. But as they're going, that we preach the gospel to them. I pray that those people will show up here, that we will welcome them and say, you know what, you can come in here, you can sit here all you want and hear the gospel message because it is that gospel message that will set you free. It is that gospel message that will transform you and remove you from slavery because here's the thing we must realize. These things are merely symptoms of the real cause. Sin manifests itself out of an unclean heart turned away from the worship of God. It is not just the actions. John Piper, in a sermon I listened to this week, he gave a huge long list of what sin is, and I just want to share a few of them with you. He said, sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the truth of God not sought, the goodness of God not savored, the wrath of God not feared, and the grace of God not cherished, the person of God not loved. This is sin. Notice he does not mention homosexuality, adultery, stealing, or any of those things. Are those sins? Absolutely. But those are merely the visual manifestation of the root cause, and the root issue is that God is not worshipped above all things. In all of these cases that I just named, in all of the news stories that you read and say, how could people act like that? I'll tell you how, because they're not worshipping God above all things. That is the root issue, and that is the problem that needs addressing, and that is the problem the gospel addresses. The gospel addresses the heart. It doesn't always address the behavior. The behavior will take care of itself if you love Jesus above all things. 
the thing is, is we still struggle with this to this day. The same thing the Jews were struggling with. They were hearing Paul's message and they could not and would not accept a gospel of free grace. They still wanted to earn it. They still wanted to be a part of it. They still wanted to have their piece of the pie and say, well, God did most of it, but I did this little part over here or else it wouldn't have happened. The Jews refused to accept it. And that's why Paul is in front of the tribune right now, as we read in chapter 23. And we look down on these Jewish people, don't we? Oh, how dare they bring Paul there? But don't we do the same thing? Because the true gospel in its simplest form will humble you. There is no other choice. If you truly hear the gospel, it will humble you. It makes it clear that we have nothing to offer. It makes it clear that we have nothing to bring to the table but sin and depravity. We are bringing wretchedness and trying to trade it for righteousness. And it's not something that we can do. We deserve nothing but the full wrath of an almighty God. But this God is merciful. This Jesus was perfect. They were exactly what we are not. And no one likes to hear, hey, this had to be done because you couldn't do it. If you're at your job and your boss comes up to you and goes, hey, remember I told you to do that? Well, I don't think you can, so I got John to do it for you. It's not a great conversation, is it? No one likes to be humbled that way. But this is the gospel whether you like it or not. This is the truth that we must stand on. This is the message that we must not compromise. It is a gospel of free grace. We offer nothing to God, and yet He bestows His grace upon us. We see the word uncompromising in today's vocabulary, and it's taken on a very negative connotation. If you say someone is uncompromising, you pretty much mean an insult. I mean, it's, no one's ever like, yeah, I'm uncompromising. Woohoo! We should be that way. Because the world tells us that compromising is the way it goes. You have to compromise your beliefs to fit in. You have to compromise your beliefs to not be offensive. You have to compromise your beliefs to not be a bigot or a hater or whatever they want to call you. The world says compromise equals love. If you love someone, you must compromise who you are. And in some cases, I believe that compromise is a very loving thing. If you're a husband in here, learn this art, okay? Learn this art with your wife and wives. Learn it as well. So it's not just the men, but we're the ones that are mostly stubborn. But compromise equals love to the world. If you really love someone, you have to change your beliefs because it's offensive not to. But for us to compromise on this message, for us to be lax on what sin is and what the gospel says about it and that the gospel can change that sin, it would not only not be loving, it would be downright hateful. See, Paul separated the crowd when he brought up the resurrection because this is what separates us from other belief systems. We believe that Jesus came, died, lived, and was resurrected. And that's what we put our faith in. We put our faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. That because of that act, we are now found and can be reconciled with God. That's what separates us. And the same thing was happening here with these Jewish people. The fact of the matter is that Jesus either is or is not the Messiah. There is no other option. If he is not, then we are blasphemers and we are still deserving of the wrath that we deserved anyway, so we're really no worse off. If Jesus didn't come to save us, we were on our way to hell, we're still on our way to hell. But if he is the Savior, then we know that the eternal fate of those who reject him and to willingly and sheepishly, because we might offend someone, let them go there, is hate. It's not just not loving. You hate that person. For us to allow someone to go ahead into that fate Head, headlong, head first, 
is hateful, and we are doing nothing. People are always looking for something, right? They're looking for answers. They're looking for people who take care of them. They're looking for fulfillment in some way. This is what the people were doing with Paul. They wanted answers. They wanted someone to do something. Paul was offending them, and someone needed to make him not offend us anymore. So we're going to arrest you. We're going to take you to these people. Look what they end up accusing him of in chapter 24, verse 5 of the book of Acts. He goes before Felix, who's the high, the high power there, um, and he goes before him, and Felix says, well, I'm not going to listen to you until you tell me what he's done. So the, the accusers come, and they say, for we have found this man a plague or a nuisance, as some translations have it. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. That was it. No real crimes. No real injustices. They even say he tried to profane the temple, but he didn't even quite make it, which wasn't even true. He wasn't trying at all. But they even admit he didn't do anything wrong. He's a nuisance. That's not a crime. We don't like him. That's not a crime. He's causing all these riots. No, you are because you're not letting him speak and you're coming against him in his message. He is just in there preaching. You can take it or leave it with Paul. He's begging you to come to Jesus, but if you don't, he's not causing the riots. They are. He has done nothing. But they want someone to do something. They've been offended. Their sensibilities have been offended. How dare Paul do this? How dare Paul speak against an entire group of people and no one is doing anything? So Felix, you do something. So they once again looked for answers and truth in a place where none was to be found. They exchanged respecting the justice of God for the justice of man. They wanted the government to do more than they were originally intended to do. The government was formed, in all cultures, the government is formed to establish justice and to protect its citizens. It's not there to alleviate every inconvenience. It is not there to, to settle squabbles. It's not there to care for and provide for its citizens from cradle to grave. And it's definitely not there to make a rule for every movement you want to make. No matter what culture you live in, that's not what the government is for. Or a good government. There are governments that do that, and no one's happy there. But that's not what government is meant for. That's not what the American government is for, and yet it has been made into that. This seems to be what the Jews are asking Felix to do. Paul is causing trouble. They, want you to do, they wanted him to do something. And again, I ask, doesn't that sound like America? Doesn't that sound like where we live? I'm offended. Do something. Make a rule. Make a law. They want our government to continually step over what they're meant to do and what they're intended to do. But here's the second application that we can take away from Paul's encounter with the Romans. First, as we've already said, we must be willing to call sin, sin, but piggyback on that, the cure for that sin. What does the gospel say about that sin, and how can that transform your life? How can that free you from that sin? Secondly, we must be guilty of the same crime that Paul was guilty of, and that's treason against the culture. The culture of our flesh, the culture of our world, tells us to give people what they deserve, good or bad. Scripture tells us to live differently. Living by the Spirit means you do not always give people what they deserve. You do not always give people bad for bad. Sometimes people deserve to be punched in the throat, and they're not because of the Spirit living inside of some of us. Sometimes I deserve to be punched in the throat, and Pastor Eric, because he's filled with the Spirit, doesn't do it. 
1 Peter 3, nine says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. If we live this way, we are going to look crazy. We are going to look counter-cultural. When someone does something bad to you and you don't do something bad back, people are like, what's up with that guy? That was, what a loser. He's a wimp because he's just letting people walk all over him. Live in a way that would not make sense. I want to really get this. We must live in a way that would not make sense unless Jesus is the answer as to why we are living that way. I'm going to say that again. Live in a way that wouldn't make any sense unless Jesus is the answer for why we are living that way. So when people go, hey, why did you just react? That was weird. Like, why did you react that way? Wasn't me, bro. Jesus. Why did you do this? Jesus. Why are you living this way? Jesus. That's the answer every time. And this is what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, I used to live this way, now I live this way, and the answer and the only thing that changed was Jesus. And they wouldn't accept this answer. The, the officials were like, no, let's beat him again, see if he'll tell us the real truth. So they do. They beat him again. Maybe he'll tell us really why they're after him. Jesus, beat him again. Maybe, this, maybe it'll work this time. They threatened him many times to get the real answer as to what he was doing, but he had already given it to him. The answer was Jesus. He had a real encounter with the risen Savior, and it changed him forever, and he's never going back. He was living as a contrarian in that day and age. He was living countercultural, and it made him look guilty of something. He had inherited grace, he had inherited blessings, and he would stop at nothing to spread, spread the wealth. He refused to take credit for it himself. He never pointed to himself, look what I've done. He did that one time sarcastically. In Scripture, saying, look, if you want to brag, I could brag about all these things, but I don't. It's Jesus. He never took credit, and he's telling us the same thing. Stop taking credit for in the inheritance that you've been given. Nobody goes, hey, I'm a millionaire. Look how hard I worked to inherit this money from my dad who actually built the company and left it to me when he died. Nobody does that. That's what we have done. We have inherited grace. We are co-heirs with Christ, and God in his lavishness has given us his grace. He has given us his mercy. He has given us all of these things, and we were given these gifts to be generous with it because we know that God has more and more and more of it if we happen to run out. If we ever get to the point where I cannot extend any more grace to these people, guess who has more to give you? God. Paul was never found guilty of anything in this narrative. He's quite the opposite, actually. A lot of the officials would go behind closed doors and be like, why is he here? Like, we, all these people, they're saying he did this, but he really didn't do anything. What do we do? Now, that never equaled his release. He spent the rest of his life in prison. But behind closed doors, the officials even recognized Paul didn't do anything. But these people wanted the government to solve their problems, and we live in the same culture. But I believe we live in that culture today because the church has dropped the ball. The church is supposed to fill this gap. The church is supposed to be the ones that take care of the ones that are not being taken care of. We are the ones who are supposed to take in and accept those who have been seemingly cast out by society. We are the ones that should be fulfilling this role so the government does not have to. We should be the ones taking care of all the people who are running to the government and asking them for handouts or asking them for this or asking them to change this. As a gospel-centered church, we must be willing to give a home to the abandoned, 
Care for the neglected. Show love to the heartbroken. Offer help and hope for the poor. To the victims of racism, we celebrate diversity. To the hurt and sick, we offer healing. To, we build relationships with the forgotten. We provide family for the orphans and the widows. We offer security to the scared. We offer belonging to the outcasts. We offer community for the lonely, perseverance for the weary, and life for the spiritually dead. That is why we are here. And that is the things that we must do so the government doesn't have to do those things. And the only way we can actually provide these things is the gospel because Jesus is all of these things. We're terrible at all of these things left to our own devices. But Jesus knows exactly how to do all of these things. Jesus is all of these things. He is a home for the abandoned. He is care for the neglected. He is love for the heartbroken and he is life for the spiritually dead. So why should the church be and do these things in today's culture where we're shunned, where Christianity is pretty much trying to be pushed out? Because Jesus did those things. He lived this out. And now he has given it to us. If you are a believer in this room today, you are rich beyond all measure in all of these things. And God has called us to be generous. Generosity is not just monetary. That's part of it. But it is not just monetary. It is giving away of anything that you have in abundance. Church, we have been given unlimited storehouses of grace so that we can, like our rich father, lavish that on society, that we can give these things away. And please hear me, this is not the job of just Mission Church, the entity. This is the job of Mission Church, the people. This is the way we must live individually in our lives Monday through Saturday. This is what we must offer to our city, our country, and our world. Stop blaming, stop complaining, and start being. Be the church, be disciples, be Christians. It's as simple as that. Now, in the coming days, we may be arrested for this. We will definitely stand out, and it's already frowned upon. But Paul did not let that stop or end his ministry, and neither should we. Please hear me. I'm not saying this is not going to be difficult. I'm not saying this won't be met with a lot of resistance. People are going to look at us like we're crazy, and they're going to ask us, why are you doing this? And our answer must be Jesus. But in verses 23, 11, we're going to go back to that. We see the Lord standing with Paul, and he is standing with us today, and he's saying, take courage, stand fast, remain steadfast, for I am with you. The cool thing about God is he never gives us a mission that we can complete on our own. Not one time. Without his power, we are destined to fail. So that we will continually run back to him and run back to him for his grace, for his mercy, for this, for that. God, I don't know how I can show any more grace to these people after all of they have done. Give me more so that it will overflow out of my life and into theirs. What did it say in 1 Peter 3.9? It said, so be a blessing so that you may obtain a blessing. And what is that blessing? You get God's grace so that you can give it out to others. And that is the mission that we should have as individuals and as a church. And he is reminding us here that we can't, but he can. He is the one with the abundance of grace. He is the one with the care for the needy. He is the one with the perseverance. And he is definitely the one with the life. And if he is for us, who can be against us? This reminds us of the last thing he said before he left earth. Behold, I am with you always. So let us go from this place and be the church. Commit treason against the culture. Stand out. Remain steadfast. Be different. But be different and be all of these things in the name of Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, we come to you weak.